Welcome to NSI Live, the National Security Institute's podcast home for NSI's public events, limited series podcasts, and breaking news podcasts. To learn more about NSI and register for upcoming events, visit nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. Now, on with the show. Thanks for joining us. It has been a little over a year since the Cyberspace Solarium Commission released its report, which included over 50 legislative proposals. Over the last year, a significant amount of those recommendations have been adopted into law. To review the work of the Commission, its impact, and the work that remains to be done, we have brought together a group of NSI's visiting fellows from across the cybersecurity and technology community to discuss. Matt Hayden is an NSI Visiting Fellow and former Assistant Secretary of Homeland Security for Cyber, Infrastructure, Risk, and Resilience Policy. Previously, he served as a Senior Advisor to the Director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency and Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Private Sector within the Office of Partnership and Engagement within DHS. J.C. Hers is an NSI Visiting Fellow and co-founder and COO of Ion Channel. She has served on federal advisory and research boards for more than a decade. Previously, she has served as a White House Special Consultant to the Office of the Secretary of Defense and as an advisor to DARPA's Defense Science Office. Kirsten Todd is an NSI Visiting Fellow, Managing Director of the Cyber Readiness Institute, and CEO of Liberty Group Ventures. Previously, she served as the Executive Director of President Obama's Independent Bipartisan Commission on Enhancing National Cybersecurity, and as a professional staff member on the U.S. Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Governance Affairs. And finally, moderating our panel today will be Megan Brown, NSI Senior Fellow and Co-Leader of NSI's Emerging Technologies and Cybersecurity Working Group. She's also a partner in Wiley Rhine's Telecom, Media, and Technology and Privacy and Cybersecurity Practices. Prior to joining Wiley Rhine, she served in the Department of Justice as a counsel to two attorneys general. Megan, take it away. It has been a full year or more since the first Cyberspace Solarium Commission report was released. Um, So with this esteemed group, um, what do you think was the biggest impact of that report uh, now that we're a year in and we're looking at the next phase of Solarium Commission activity? I'll I'll jump in. I think the the biggest immediate checkbox was almost, and I told you so, by the Solarium group altogether. With the solar winds, the exchange vulnerabilities, with the broad swath of uh, vulnerabilities and attacks that we've seen and since the NDA language came through, uh, it's been a great validator for the, the need for a better organizational structure as well as a coordinated whole-of-government approach. So I think that the, the biggest step one has been they got a good bit of this right. Uh, following up with the CISA side of the House and getting them uh, in the right position to stand up under that White House cyber director role and uh, to leverage some of these new authorities, including their subpoena uh, efforts, uh, is really going to take hold hopefully quickly. And as they move forward with that, I think that will show great value also. Thanks, Matt. Hey, Kirsten and JC, what do you think? So I think one of the real values to what the commission did was that it got legislation passed. I think, you know, having run Obama's commission in 2016, the value of having uh, members of Congress 
uh, become a part of this and actually identify, hey, this is what's going on. This is what we need. And then being able to execute on that, I think, has shown uh, enormous efficiency and effectiveness within government. And the other advantage is that we now have members of Congress who are even more invested in this issue, which I think has always been an issue, always been a challenge. Uh, we certainly have had you know people who have carried the flag. Um, but what we've seen is bipartisan support for a cyber agenda. I'm a big believer that cyber is, is nonpartisan. And so having this cyber agenda that is bipartisan and seeing these actions that have been identified uh, by a broad group of thought leaders to say, these are our priorities, and then getting them uh, passed and now looking at how to get them executed to me is a, is a very strong output and impact of the commission. I think that one of the big positive impacts of this is to give a bow wave to efforts that were already afoot. So for instance, the Department of Commerce has a software transparency initiative, and I co-chair one of the working groups about software bills and materials, right? That started in 2019. And all that work has to get done. And as a result of that, the FDA has issued forward-looking guidance that software bills and materials will be required for approval of medical devices. And now you're talking about real money, right? Because people want medical devices approved because that's huge economically. And so where all of this dovetails into the public-private efforts and some of the industry pull for, for transparency, that's where a lot of the effort gets to be the most effective because if all it is is that you know there's there's some disclosure which is good and you know everyone's going to double down on NIST controls right which is really expensive and unscalable um, that's less effective than if the industry starts getting behind it and adopting private sector technological efforts to improve security posture now, those are great points. I do want to come back in a few minutes to that role of the private sector, because obviously the commission bit off a lot in that first report, right? They had, you know, over 75 recommendations, many of which were not focused on the government as the government. It was on the public-private partnerships and on, on even some very direct private sector regulation. But before we jump into that, let's, I want to get your thoughts a little bit, because um, I certainly have some, on the vehicle that is being used for the Solarium Commission's recommendations. Many of those original recommendations and then some in their follow-on reports, um, right? They didn't just do the one report, they, they have had follow-up reports. Um, many of them made it into last year's National Defense Authorization Act, which for listeners who don't know, the NDAA is sort of one of the last remaining must-pass pieces of legislation because it authorizes the Department of Defense and, and the warfighter. Um, from my perspective, though, and I'm curious for your guys' thoughts, you know, some of the things that they're recommending and that are probably going to be teed up for this coming NDAA um, are not traditional um, military-related legislation and DOD funding. Um, so what are your thoughts? Is it a problem that so much domestic and non-military legislation gets is being increasingly stuck in the NDAA? Or, or do you think that sort of that's worth it, given the stakes here? So I think that's just where we are. Um, the NDAA has proven just to be one of the few pieces of bipartisan legislation that gets passed. And so it has become a vehicle for getting things done. Um, that's less to me an issue about what goes in there and more an issue of how Congress and government works. And unfortunately, in this situation, I don't think we get to choose. I think the success of getting some of these things passed 
um, is where we have to focus from a cyber perspective because we've had these challenges. Um, certainly, I think there's a broader philosophical, ideological issue that this is where we are, that we don't get a lot of legislation pa- passed, bipartisan legislation. Um, but what members of Congress know uh, are that if they need to get something done, um, this is where it goes. And again, I think that's much more a, an issue that needs to be addressed with Congress, with how our government operates, and less about uh, these specific commission recommendations. I agree with what Kirsten said. Everything about that is correct. I do think that we have to consider national security holistically, right? Because cyber, I don't care which sector you're talking about, whether it's energy or critical manufacturing or chemical plants or oil and gas, if you're being attacked by state actors, it's a national security issue And we have to get the national security conversation oriented towards that. So the the new new, and this was definitely part of what the solarium was about, is that it's not just teenagers and criminals attacking our (laughs) infrastructure anymore. There are state actors involved. We're in in the middle of four cold wars right now, and it's affecting medical devices. So we have to consider national security holistically. And so it's not completely inappropriate for these issues to be wedged into the NDAA. And and my my point would be to echo both their points of it is the legislative body of our day, as well as it's the national security of our day is the cyberspace. I mean, that that threat vector is is a national security threat, no matter what level of sector or critical infrastructure you're in. At the same time, um, when we start talking about the national defense, it's also a whole of government. It's it's not when we talk about a lot of uh, partnership empowerment and, and working with the private sector at the same time on our side, on the Fed side, you have to look at it from a whole of government approach. And, and while the NDIA traditionally has had that focus of, of a DOD slant to it or, or a priority of the, uh, the DOD committees, uh, it's, it's going to take more than just DOD and more than just DOD funding to pull this off. So I think the NDIA expanding in this national defense tone to bring the other agencies to the table, I, I think is, is a good way of leveraging a tool, as was earlier mentioned, that is the tool to use. So one of the main recommendations that did make it into last year's NDAA was the creation of a national cyber director in the White House. And this was one that um, a lot of folks got behind. I don't know that everyone picked up on the breadth of that director's mission and the authorization of the number of full-time employees that are now going to be effectively in the National Security Council for this. Uh, But that position, so it's going to be a pretty important position. And Matt, you've been at CISA, you know the importance of having sort of a, a, someone watching these issues who's, who's a senior role. That's what Chris Krebs, I think, did well was to raise the profile of these issues. But that position in the White House has been unfilled now for several months, and there's no nominee in sight. There's also a few other gaps in cyber leadership um, across the government. Um, is the challenge here, you guys, from your perspective, the lack of clarity about the role? Is it that we don't have the, the right personnel or bench strength? Um, is it a turf battle or is it just that the, the White House hasn't gotten around to it? But what do you think is going on there? Because, you know, everyone has been saying for years there needed to be, there should have been a senior White House person, sort of a cyber czar, czarina. Uh, but what do you think is is the, the delay here? So I'll, I'll jump in at first. Uh, the the biggest challenge I think that's at the foot of the White House is, is just as you mentioned, they're not statting a senior leader. 
they're basically rebuilding an office that from scratch that matches the capacity and size of like a U.S. trade representative office. And so when you take that kind of scale and just look for that puzzle piece that currently didn't exist in the last puzzle to just build that in, uh, there there is a lot of homework that goes into that to get it right. Uh, I, I know that they are working on getting those pillars in place to get that office stood up, and uh, they are working with candidates at least to get uh, that particular role filled. At the same time, the operations that existed beforehand – that we're kind of doing these other duties as a sign to try and meet some of the needs of this cyber director role where leadership in the agencies and political leadership and the, and the different offices across the White House leaned in. I think with the current support they have from the ledge side, they're getting the job done and the efforts that they need to get as far as coordinating for solar winds and some of these mass outages. They're not there yet. That's why this office needs to be stood up. But at the same time, I don't think we're in the dire emergency of if an incident happened, we wouldn't know what to do having this office not Mm -hmm. stood up yet. It just would be better coordination. And I look forward to them having it stood up. But I also am very sympathetic to uh, a turnkey operation when there's no playbook. It's a hard job, though. I I mean, you have someone who's put in a position of incredible prominence, right? They've given this big title, right? But what is it that they can actually do, right? And I think that we've seen, you know, without sufficient authorities, I'm going to guess we're going to have some more task forces, right? Because that's what Mm -hmm. you can do when you don't have a lot of authorities. And then how how much leverage does this position have to affect even what's in the U.S. government in the locus of control? I mean, look at our agencies, right? They're, they're not getting all A's on their FISMA, right? So, so how, if we're getting D's and F's on our own report cards, I think that's, that's a place to start. You know, we need, we need to, as they say in tech, eat our own dog food and figure out what's possible to do even within the executive branch and learn some lessons there. And I think that there are agencies that are doing that. I mean, GSA is doing that right now um, to figure out, well, what can we actually do? Where do you, where do you put your chips? Because everyone has these issues, right? But what can you actually do to close the loop is a big problem. And it's not a problem that person in that job can necessarily solve today or even make much progress towards solving. So there's a, it's a very wicked problem. And that's why, you know, whoever signs up for this, I mean, they should have sainthood like on day one, because it's, it's, <laughs> a, it's a, it is a huge cliff of challenge. And so figuring out where, where you can apply uh, energy to get some propulsion in, in, in a problem set this large and complex, I think that's part of the problem is, is, is what do you mm-hmm. actually do? A trade representative, Matt, a trade representative can actually negotiate with people. Um, uh, I don't, I'm not exactly sure what the person in this job does other than broad awareness and exposure um, to surface some of these issues, what they actually do in the job. And Megan, I think that there's a need for this role. I mean, the issue, though, is that when the NCD was passed, the Biden administration was already moving forward on this deputy national security advisor. So the initial discussion was not about both of these positions. Having said that, though, it's not like there's not enough work to go around. And so one piece in looking at these different roles, I think certainly the deputy national security advisor is this interagency, you know, keeping everything coordinated interagency, integrating the policies across government, being a presidential advisor. 
The National Cyber Director, I think, also takes on, though, these important roles that are separate and distinct. Um, there is the idea of the federal cyber workforce, so almost a chief personnel officer, of some, as some have talked about, a strategist, being able to engage with the private sector and making sure that the technologies and the collaboration pre-event with the private sector is coming together and active uh, cyber defense, looking at these issues, operational coordination. Um, I do think that we can see these two positions working well together. I give a lot of credit to the Biden administration and uh, Ann Neuberger right now for taking on the 60-day review of how the NCD is going to work with the Deputy National Security Advisor. That's not being done because there's not enough you know, space and, and elbows are out. It's actually because there is this effort to figure out how these two work together. Having said all of that is uh, just to, to repeat what JC and Matt have said, this is a new office that's ge getting uh, stood up. When the uh, DNI was being stood up, there was somebody brought in specifically to look at how do we build an office? Um, you've got 75 employees that are going to be detailed from government, detailed from industry. This is all positive. These are the these are the issues we've wanted to to address. So I don't think we should stand back in in reticence or reluctance, but figure out how do we move forward with these authorities, with these powers, to be able to look at cyber and not just regurgitate you know these issues that we've how we've defined cyber in the past. But the solutions that we need for the future stand on innovation, how we're working with industry, how government and industry work together, how we bring technologies in. And I think, again, those are that's a that's a big bill of action. And the more bright people we can get into senior levels to to work together, the better off we'll be as a nation. Well, luckily, National Security Institute at George Mason has a whole bunch of bright people. So maybe they can <laughs> maybe we can get those 75 FTEs from, from some exactly. of our people. Um, but speaking of sort of working together, um, I did want to touch on one of the recommendations that made it into the NDAA is a new subpoena authority for CISA and authorizing CISA to do threat hunting on federal networks. I think this is an idea that captured the imagination of some folks on the Hill. And there's talk, uh, there's a study underway from the NDAA about threat hunting on defense contractor networks and what's feasible there. Um, you know, in light of solar winds, you know, some people thought that maybe Einstein uh, was a failure and, and sort of they're puzzling through what could have prevented solar winds. I'm in the camp that doesn't know that, that anything could have prevented it um, in that respect. But what do you guys think is CISA's role in threat detection and response? The reason I ask is it necessarily involves the private sector, as you all have just sort of eloquently explained, um, the, the cyber challenge does. But there's also here other federal agencies, whether it's the intelligence community or otherwise, that play a role in threat detection. Um, so what are your thoughts on how CISA helps with some of this threat detection and response uh, challenge? I can speak to when I was there and, and how they've moved forward. Uh, part of the Einstein challenge is that it was developed for the threats of, the, of their day. And as encryption and other methods get more uh, as, as attack vectors through what is that Internet-facing set of devices, it's not that we don't need an Einstein. It's, maybe there's more mature flavors of an Einstein. I think that the, the challenges and threats that we had yesterday are going to be with us tomorrow. It's more of a matter of having more mature technology and, and innovation, as been earlier stated, towards a new set of tools to layer with that so that we have this layered defense, we have this layered approach to where it's not just if you pop a firewall, you're in. And knowing what, what 
the the logging and the background is. And, and that comes with visibility past that internet facing barrier. And so that's where the CISA role comes in is currently with their .gov efforts, the threat hunting aspect and, and the other measures that they leverage with their federal partners are based on a mother may I system that anytime they go in, they have to have a lot of uh, prearranged engagement with that particular agency. This takes a lot of that and adds speed and efficiency to their work and gives them the flexibility to find some of these vulnerabilities before they become compromised. At the same time, to see where some of these novel uh, attacks are taking place and try to minimize the risk from that and, is, and start those mitigation factors quicker. So th- there is a strong work afoot, especially with the resources that just went their way. Uh, as, as Brandon Wells would say, as the acting director, he will tell you that there's a drop in the bucket. They're looking at $600 million mm-hmm. as an investment in a po- portion of development of a new strategy. Uh, with that kind of uh, dollars figures being thrown out. It's a serious undertaking that will take several years to get right. And and we don't have several years. And so I think that's part of where CISA is stuck between a rock and a hard place is they know they need better tools. They know they need more funding. They also know they need better visibility than they are even getting through the NDAA. So they're they're doing the best they can with what they have right now. I think that more investment and, and more visibility is always a good thing. And Megan, I think building off of what Matt was just saying, I think everybody agrees that we've got to get beyond passive uh, network monitoring to active threat detection. And I do think with everything that we've seen, and as Matt uh, laid out, working with industry, getting the, the capabilities of industry into government, so government represents where we are today in emerging technology in, in capabilities is critical. But the key piece to this is right now, CISA needs more of the capabilities to do this. And I would like to see you know, CISA working with the National Cyber Director on this. When you're looking at outreach to industry, uh, we've got to be you know, in lockstep across government. I think one of the things that uh, Chris, uh, Chris Krebs did really well and you know we've talked a lot is in two years develop trust with industry we forget that a few years ago dhs didn't have a lot of trust with industry and now we have to play on that to be able to bring in active threat detection bring in those resources that are going to allow us to see what happens ahead of time um, and i would just say you know solar winds you know we can talk about the cyber failure of solar winds and all of the issues um, but what we haven't talked too much about and uh, i know we're not going to get too deep into this is the intelligence failure, the idea that we didn't see any of these red flags about Russia intent um, and where that was. So when we look at cyber, we also have to see where it is in the ecosystem of a threat. And uh, I think that helps us to then look at how we prevent and detect. And all of that obviously depends on industry government working together and on the resources in government to work effectively. So Kirsten, Mm -hmm. I mean, I gotta tell you though, from the trenches, right? All, everything here, there's nothing logically untrue about it, but it, it has a, everyone has an incredibly naive faith that when issues are discovered, they will be addressed, right? So back in April of 2020, COVID, right? So we started putting a whole bunch of public health capabilities into analysis and monitoring. And this is VA, CDC, FDA, on down the line, we found critical vulnerabilities and malware in dozens of capabilities that run SBA, the front end of the VA, the back end of the VA, all of it, right? And we informed all of the contractors, we informed the agencies. Some of those capabilities still have malicious packages in them a year later, 
right? So now we're a private sector, right? We're a technology company, right? So we don't have the authority to make them do anything. But we informed CISA too. And the, the CISA is working on a disclosure policy for vulnerabilities, right? That's, that's the, the work to do. But every single one of these federal agency capabilities that had critical vulnerabilities and malicious packages that we found that they were informed about, only the CDC jumped on it and fixed it. And I think, JC, you've hit on exactly where the challenge is within government, right? If you look right now at how the agencies responded to some of the more recent breaches, you'll find that they've gone to industry to say, how is this agency working? And so in theory, I think this is where a national cyber director position would have have that effect to be able to say, we've got to look at what's being detected in the private sector, where the vulnerabilities are. We've, we've got to sync this up. And I know, Megan, you want to get to incident reporting and all of this, because there's no question that right now there's a disjointed approach. And I think, you know, you've seen some of the discussions around the forthcoming executive order and what that's going to be around supply chain and how it's working with government. Um, so I, I don't think anyone disagrees with where the problems have been. I think what's critical is us being able to dissect enough to know how are we going to move forward to create the solutions and the approaches that allow for what happened and all of the different issues with solar winds to not happen or at least but, to be but, mitigated. But, but what forward. those organizations are going to say to you or Congress, right? When, oh yeah, there's, there's malware in, in the, the VA front end. They'll give you like, okay, where's my TMF money to fix this? Where's my money? Give me the money to maintain because our real problems, we don't have a lack of innovation. We have a lack of resilience because we're not maintaining things because most of the breaches is just a million potholes not being filled. And we can say they're not filled. And then people will say, okay, fine, give me money to fill them. So there's, there's the, the economic story. We have this myth of innovation because of Silicon Valley, because it's such a huge engine of economic growth that the problem is we don't have enough innovation. But the problem is we don't have enough maintenance to be resilient. And when we get knocked down, it's really hard to get back up because all our stuff is so outdated. And, and that's what we're going to find. We're going to find there's a huge issue with maintenance and that we can, we can scrub it with all this threat detection. And then someone's going to tell you, all right, fine, I need a billion five to bring this up to code. Where is that? And that's the next really hard question that we're going to have to answer. Well, and if I could throw in here, I mean, one of the challenges we're seeing uh, in the private sector is, you know, as you've said, there's a lot of sort of uh, infrastructure that's full of potholes, if you want to use that analogy, which I, I, I like for the computer infrastructure of a lot of the, of the private sector in addition to the government. And when you're layering on some of these new requirements like the NIST 800-171, CMMC, some of these things, whether it's the certification standard or others, you're you're adding expense, right? These are these are choices that have to be made and they do come with a cost. And I think that's a conversation that um, I don't see us having enough. Maybe the national cyber director can help prioritize where we want to put that investment, right? Because as you say, you know, I think we're all in violent agreement. This stuff costs, right? Um, so I think it's super interesting. I do want to jump into a few of the things that are recommended by the Solarium Commission for the next NDAA. I feel like we just got through the last NDAA. And now we're starting to talk about the next one. Um, so uh, lest you have NDAA fatigue, I was thinking maybe we would tackle this, um, Matt, JC, and Kirsten, as kind of a lightning round, if that's okay with you. Um, so we can cover some ground. Um, 
So let's jump first to SICI, which I think is one of the worst acronyms, Systemically Important Critical Infrastructure, which is they kind of seem to want to get rid of the old Section 9 approach or build on it, maybe tweak it, it's kind of um, lagged, and have new regulatory obligations as well as some liability protections for companies that are deemed systemically important critical infrastructure. Um, anyone want to want to weigh in on whether you think that's the right approach to target in on a few key parts of our critical infrastructure and national critical functions to use an old Kirsten Nielsen um, phrase to, to sort of move things along by mandating new minimum standards, certifications, but having the carrot of liability protection. I think this just a uh, quick answer would be that there, there's got to be a baseline. Right now, cyber hygiene doesn't have a baseline for some of these critical structures. And, and so, for example, with the water incident, uh, it just it just raises the red flag that there are SLTT partners that are in charge of critical infrastructure that, that has the safety and welfare of the, the public at, 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 in its hands and that doesn't have the resources and or doesn't have the support to, to put these basic hygiene operations in place. And so whether it be through some level of uh, indemnification or resourcing, there just has to be something that it takes on the SLTT angle as well as gives those that do have a challenge with coming forward some protection to do so. So I, I would say yes, but there is an SLTT component to that that makes it complex. This is Kirsten. I was just going to say, we all agree that the current structure is insufficient, I think, um, and how we look at at critical infrastructure. I think Section 9 um, ended up not working very effectively for a lot of reasons, where being critical infrastructure was more of a burden than an opportunity. The other piece to this is we've got to redefine what critical infrastructure is. I think in this day and age with interdependencies, we have different lifeline sectors, but technologies actually absolutely become a part of our critical infrastructure. Cloud service providers, I would assert right now that you know social media, when you look at the impact on national and economic security. So we've got to expand the definition to be able to understand how these are all working together and ensure that by being identified as critical infrastructure, it's not just seen as where the regulations and the boundaries are, but that is absolutely important. But understanding then what's the responsibility to work with government? Um, because one of the things that we certainly saw with solar winds is that industry and the private sector are getting actionable cyber intelligence at rates in their sectors that are very helpful and constructive. Government will always know nation state activity across sectors uh, better than any one industry itself. And that just goes to show that when we look at critical infrastructure, we have to look at what we're protecting. I, I just want to put an exclamation point on what Matt was saying, because I do think state and local authorities, I think water has always been a big fear of mine, um, because you've got 50,000 water authorities across the nation that have limited resources. So we really have to can figure out how we're working across large resourced infrastructure and small critical under-resourced infrastructure and how they work together with government and think about what's the what can incentivize the appropriate secure behavior. So I think that, and I, this echoes some points that have been made, we got to be really careful about the endless expansion of what we call critical infrastructure, just as with national security. And it's very easy to be a mile wide and an eighth of an inch deep. So we really need to have things past the zombie apocalypse test, right? So if we don't have this, are we talking about a zombie apocalypse? Water? Yeah. Power? Uh-huh. Medical infrastructure? But, you know, people aren't getting their Twitter. I'm not sure. So, so being able to focus on these really critical to human life and safety Industries And also to Matt's point and, and Kirsten's point, these are systems. 
there's interdependencies. We're not talking about just making it a global bank, right? We're talking, I mean, the minute you get down to those regionals and the local banks and the rural telecom networks, these are middle market or small and medium-sized businesses. And so how we raise the bar to that minimum, agreed, there needs to be one. That's the challenge is when these things are woven into the fabric of our critical infrastructure and they're undercapitalized and regulated uh, locally or on the state level, how do we actually navigate that from a security perspective? And, and, and that's a big thorny policy question and an economic question. Megan, I think I'll just add, because I, I absolutely, again, with what Matt and JC have said, um, but I would just like to push forward on this point around technology, because when you look at the safety and security of our election in 2016, and you look at the safety and security of our democracy, that may not be what brings water to the table, but it absolutely is the foundation upon which we operate. And we have let these other entities, when you look at how cloud has now integrated into every part of our infrastructure, it goes to the earlier point that we have to get at the cause and not always be addressing the symptom. And right now, technology is at the foundation of a lot of what we're doing. And we've got to restructure. I, I completely agree that we don't want to just bring in everybody. But I think we have to understand where technology is and how we're operating and how we're treating it. It can't just be seen as an, a company that's looking at ROI that we accept and understand but aren't inviting to the table. Um, and we've got to think through what that, that format is. Awesome. So the next thing I think flows from that question about sort of how the private sector interacts with the government, um, logically, you know, the question is then mandatory incident reporting. The Cyberspace Solarium Commission uh, was pretty big on this in its report. I think they want to populate um, the, the various uh, data pools that they have. They want to be better at sharing information. And some folks think that voluntary information sharing hasn't worked. Um, also, it's a corollary to a national data breach standard, which I think folks have wanted for, what, 30 years now. We still don't seem to have. Uh, but they're talking about mandatory incident reporting by companies that offer incident response services. Footnote, that sounds very broad, the way I've heard it described, as well as insurers, right, and pulling and aggregating this information. Uh, we already have a patchwork of mandatory reporting and some very short timelines, um, do you guys think a new reporting obligation is the right approach here? I'll go first. Uh, the, the challenge with, with any new reporting standard is it's going to have headwinds on Congress because that's one of the things that get fought the most is when you turn to industry and say the disclosure needs to be greater. Uh, that, that turns into the regulatory framework and they say, well, we're already reporting here, we're already reporting there. On your side of the fence, you need to get your house in order so it's more streamlined. So I, I think it's going to be a hard push to get across the finish line. At the same time, uh, one of the, the challenges post solar winds was, was the government not being the agency or, or the, the voice that actually had this information and, and, when CISA got involved after FireEye Fire and others stepped in and, and provided that information and Microsoft and, and SolarWinds themselves, they were then charged with kind of fixing the problem, weren't the, doesn't have the authority or, or anything other than the educational warning and advise role to do so. And so I think that having information earlier is always going to make their job easier. Having information that comes in that is specific to incidents for getting an idea of those threats is going to be helpful. Uh, the method in which it happens uh, is going to be tough to, to come up with a silver bullet because a lot of these sectors already have very strict regulatory controls in place, including reporting. It's just a matter of, of getting all that in a concise manner. 
if you don't set up the the liability protection and you don't set up the incentives, then the incentives are perverse, right? If you have mandatory reporting, um, the incentive is actually not to know anything. And there are tens of thousands of enterprises right now that are choosing not to know because A, they don't want to spend the money to know. And second, they don't want the information. If they're not required to have it, then they have to report it. So I think in order to have this actually work, uh, the there has to be some kind of safe harbor and there has to be some kind of incentive, like some kind of carrot. Like if you come to us, we're going to help you. What What is CISA going to do to actually help? So if, if I'm a private sector enterprise and, and I, I can somehow incentive, to, there's an incentive for me to know something and I can come to CISA and I'm, I have a safe harbor and I'm going to get some help, if that's the cavalry, then, then there's, a pos- there's a positive feedback loop that we can start to put in place. If there's not one, see no evil, man. I, I will not buy a single cybersecurity tool that I'm not regulated to buy because I'm going to have to report it and then I'm going to have to spend a gajillion dollars to fix it. And you know what? I got shareholders and I got my reputation, you know, it, it won't happen. So you can't mandate a, a violation of physics. You have to work with physics. And, and I think that's the piece of the puzzle that we have not addressed, but that we have a huge opportunity to address if we can build some kind of cavalry function in some kind of safe harbor to, to, to create a dynamic attractor for, for all that reporting that it's good for me because I'll get help. That, that's where we need to go. The only other thing that I'll add, because I think um, the way that uh, both Matt and JC have laid it out is exactly right. We don't have the right incentives for reporting. We don't incentivize it. And there's no uh, there's no kind of reward. And we have to figure out how not to penalize because right now reporting, um, it's very much to what JC was saying about ignorance. Cybersecurity is the only domain where we ask private companies to protect themselves. You know, and when we look at that, I think, you know, the points around how do we provide resources if you report, how is it a safe harbor? To JC's point, I think that's where we've got to get to. And um, we're, we're existing in a purgatory that doesn't make any company feel secure, safe in having the incentives for reporting. Well, and I know you guys had mentioned, I think it was JC who mentioned sort of shareholders. One question I did want to ask about um, that's sort of lurking in the cyberspace solarium report that I think is going to get some attention this year, even if it doesn't actually pass, um, is their proposal to elevate cyber risk and auditing and sort of transform it into more like the sort of financial controls approach that was in Sarbanes-Oxley passed after sort of financial crisis many years ago, built on financial fraud was really the the fear that Sarbanes-Oxley was trying to get at um, to make sure companies were abiding auditing and accounting controls. Um, I personally think this is not the right way to address cyber, uh, to treat it in this manner and, and create a whole industry of auditors that will come in and sort of look under the hood. And then you'll have all these questions about public reporting and, and disclosures. But that's sort of my personal opinion. What do you guys think of this particular slice of um, their attempt, maybe as JC put it, to change the <laughs> it, to change the laws of physics, perhaps when it comes to incentives? But uh, what do you guys think of this proposal? Uh- I will start with the CMMC, I'm afraid, is here to stay. So to the extent that we're looking into supply chain and contractor relationships to anybody that has acquisition relationships uh, with with DOD and now with DHS and others, uh, you're going to have 
this scorecarding of, of what's your cyber hygiene? What is, what is your partner cyber hygiene? What are the risks through your supply chain that we have all the way down? And, and I think that level of auditing is going to occur. Uh, it's starting in the acquisition lane, but it's going to likely find its way into the supply chain lane as these risks come up with key sector partners. So I, I don't think that there is going to be a way to dodge it. I think it's something more to empower at the moment in the right direction and to say, okay, if you do have foreign investment risk, if you do have cyber risk that, that is amounting to uh, a red flag for the government, let's talk about that and see what mitigations to prevent that risk from becoming a reality uh, can be put in place. So I think that is here to stay as far as uh, treating it as something that you can't avoid. Uh, it's, it's also an incident response category in which we're talking about have your playbook in mind. And, and, and that includes public response and public disclosure. And, and that's part of what a tabletop exercise would bring to any uh, larger company. But we don't have that in the hands of a lot of medium to small. And I think that's where a lot of the regulated entities need additional help, not just in protecting themselves, but in how to respond and, and where those safe harbors may be, even in how to speak to it to their advisors, task boards, and local governments. Megan, go ahead, JC. I think we have to, again, look at the physics, right? So I think, and the the ACA is a good example, right? So, So there were some things that were done intentionally, and then there was a whole bunch of physics that followed to include huge amounts of consolidation in the industry. And so we we can require and require and require but if the only answer is there's 640 pages of controls what is going to happen and i'm not saying it's good or bad is that the cloud providers will become even more powerful because it's only going to be aws and azure and you know maybe two and a half others that can provide you with that fully controlled stack and you do your little icing of, of shared responsibility on the top on your AppSec, that is going to be the only economically feasible way to meet a thousand pages of controls if that's the way we want to do this. So, and I'm not saying that's good or bad. It might be great, but the burden has to live somewhere. And if the only way to meet the burden is to invest tens of billions of dollars in in multi-tenant infrastructure, that is where we will find ourselves. And Megan, I don't think it's, um, I would like to think it's not an either or just between what Matt and JC have said. Um, I'm not sure that Sarbanes-Oxley is the model for, for behavior and what we're looking at cyber. There's no question that we've got to focus on supply chain security. And I think you've seen some thoughtful discussions out of the Biden administration, the EO, and um, uh, looking at this. To JC's point, we have to support all the businesses that are parts of the supply chain. I do think we need that validation, as Matt was talking about, about what does it mean to work with government? Um, you know, would government have stopped working with solar winds if it knew it had software that was getting maintained in Eastern Europe? Who knows? But there are different, I do think there are some foundation levels of understanding about what is secure behavior on the part of a company. I also think we have to support the small and medium businesses that are at the fabric of what we're building. And that doesn't mean that every small business has to be part of government infrastructure, um, but we've got to work much more broadly and diversified to help businesses do better, um, to help them be secure, to tell them what it means to be secure, to give them the resources to do so. 
I don't think we have a long way to go before we get into a place where we can just audit. Um, and I do think that we uh, tend to default to co compliance checklists um, when we look at security. And I, I think that's a danger. Um, but I do believe we have an opportunity to find a happy medium in looking at this. It's not going to be easy and it's going to require industry talking about where it, it works and, and what's effective. Um, but it's, it's got to happen because the, the dangers of it not happening are an insecurity, a monopoly, and you know, this, this lack of really bringing the diversification of industry um, to the table. We live in a dual use, globally developed technology world. And that includes, you know, Microsoft research in Beijing, it, everyone develops software everywhere. And even if they think they don't, they do, because this is where the open source is coming from. So the, the, the whole idea of like a buy American for software, it, the, the unintended consequence there is to create a, a little ghetto where a, a bunch of defense contractors build incredibly expensive, outdated and unmaintainable capabilities for the federal government. And we've seen this movie before. So be careful because what we actually need to do is to be able to monitor instrument and assure capabilities from wherever. Uh, and there may be some we choose not to use because there's a lot of risk. And, you know, Huawei is a, is an example of this, but uh, the, there's, there's a temptation to, to, to use metaphors from other industries and it's very dangerous because we don't want to ghettoize our own technology. And, and that's a risk if we say the wrong kinds of policies that sound really good when they come out of our mouths. So moving to, we're, we're coming up on time. So I did want to get your final thoughts on, you know, the CSC has been reauthorized through the end of this year. Uh, it doesn't have a, a large or specific mandate, for example, to take public comment or input as they draft legislation. I know they're working on legislation now. Um, so I guess for your, I'd love to get your final thoughts on sort of what uh, is the Solarium the best organization to carry forward uh, the work that we've all just discussed or, or what do you see going forward as the best way to operationalize um, so that we're not just, as JC says, sort of having um, you know, nice sounding things coming out of our mouths, but we're actually sort of making progress on real actions here, whether it's public-private partnerships or legislation? Is the Solarium the best organization to do this or what should we be thinking about going forward? I think there's an obligation at the private sector level, but until there is a body that brings private sector, government, and both sides of the legislative together, like the Solarium does, getting legislation across is going to be a, a hill that might be insurmountable. So I look at the model the Solarium has where they have both sides covered and they have support uh, from members of Congress. I think that is the key that currently is pushing them into the limelight and keeps them more than relevant as, as a key body to move with this. Uh, there's going to be thought leaders across industry that, that play into this at the same time uh, that will have their own distinct roles in, in getting some of the work product fleshed out. But I don't, I don't see a, a challenge with keeping the solarium moving as, as a key uh point to get these types of, of policies across the finish line. The Solarium has been very successful in, in pushing uh, awareness of this agenda. And, and that's not an easy thing to do. And, and the, the, the real interchange between the private sector and public sector, which is still figuring it out, 
right? And legislation. And, and, and there's a level of humility that, that you, you want to strive for in all of this. And I think that Solarium struck the right balance. And to Matt's point, um, having everyone around the table is very important and, and necessary, in fact, if we're going to do something that's feasible. And obviously, just to, um, you know, certainly agree with, uh, with what Matt and JC have said that, you know, the solarium has been very effective. Uh, I think the hope, if we think about the 9-11 commission and other commissions that have been effective, the 9-11 commission evolved into the public discourse project, which took on other issues. Um, There have been other examples of that. The hope would be that the members of Congress don't need the body of the commission anymore to do the good work. Um, that's obviously a little bit ideological, but that we can evolve and maybe it's another type of public discourse project that comes out of the commission where you have a group of of individuals that are working on these issues in a longer term perspective. Um, But I think we've got to hope that government also can do some of this work. And again, it's, it's somewhat ideological, but we've got to push government and industry to work together um, to be able to achieve these goals. And I think Solarium has, you know, as has been said, it really raised the importance of the issue and was said at the outset, you know, it, it, there's a lot that's happened over the last 60 days, 90 days that have made what it said, obviously, even more effective. And the hope would be that Congress can take this, do the work, um, and that the longer term thinking and discussions can be done um, through other vehicles and working across and that we don't just have one exceptional uh, example of, of how we can be impactful, but that we actually get a structure throughout government and industry that starts to be effective um, and be able to, to achieve some of these same goals. I'll just say, I think one of the key pieces to this, as we have other issues moving forward, is having a body that's run by members of Congress like this has proven to be so impactful because of the actual action that was able to move forward. And I commend what the commission did, how they brought together thought leaders to not only come up with the policy solutions, but to actually get them passed. Well, thanks so much, everybody. I think this has been uh, certainly an education for me. Hopefully our listeners uh, and viewers will find it equally um, helpful as we think about what the next steps are uh, for the Solarium Commission's report and recommendations and its agenda going forward. So uh, JC, Kirsten, and Matt, thanks so much for taking the time on behalf of National Security Institute at George Mason. Really, really appreciate it. Great conversation. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us for this presentation from the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver for production assistance.